When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm just going to look over here and start thinking about the character. I'm not going to put anything on it. I'm not going to put anything on it. I'm not going to wait till the temperature in the room where I've eaten or the dishes are out of the sink. I'm just going to start daydreaming. We all daydream. It's the same shit. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. Today, we're talking with my friend Brian Callen. Look, if you've seen a funny movie in the past decade and a half, you've seen and probably loved Brian Callen. We'll discuss growing up all over the world and feeling like an outsider and what he did about that, dealing with rejection in your personal and professional life. Look, this episode was a lot of fun. It was loaded with energy from a brilliant creator and a really driven fella, and I think you're really, really gonna enjoy this one. Now, let's hear from Brian Callen. Doing what we do here, it's tough because people go, what qualifies you? And it's like, well, I can't really just say I'm not an idiot and the stuff actually works, but I also have a law degree. I don't have a degree in nonverbal communication science or psychology. Right. So I've been applying all this stuff within our coaching team has been applying all this stuff, but we can't point to this piece of paper on the wall, but we get people with pieces of paper on the wall going, actually, let's try it this way, and it's complete bullshit. It's just like a theory they came up with that they think maybe should work based on a bunch of books that they read, which is valid in some way, yeah. but if you test it and it doesn't work, let it go. That's right, you gotta be responsive to the evidence. There's gotta be measurable results. And so, I've always been skeptical of all the psychology, but I have to tell you, when you're married and you're trying to raise kids, I have a very different culture than my wife. She's like very Germanic and Swedish and I'm very Southern Italian and, you know, grew up in chaos and she grew up in order. When you're trying to raise two human beings, you better be on the same page. There are experts and we've seen them that get you on the same page. Look, I spoke to this woman, Betsy Braun, and she wrote a book called You're Not the Boss of Me and another book, I can't remember, but two sessions with her and she, I was doing everything wrong raising my kids. My idea of raising my kids was instinct. Do what I say, I'll kick your ass, I'm a guy, I'm gonna raise you the way traditionally with discipline and don't talk back, blah, blah, blah. And then you get someone like her who's been doing it forever and raised three kids of her own and she goes, here's a couple ideas. Oh, and by the way, here's how a kid thinks. It's exactly like when you train a dog. People who train dogs, they go, when the dog does something bad, they go, you know, uh, you know, Rex, no. Or the dog goes to the bathroom, then you punish the dog. That shit doesn't work. There are techniques. I watch people play tennis. I love tennis. I spend a lot of money on lessons from a really good playing pro. You know why? Because I want to be a good tennis player. So my grip and how I swing, all that shit matters. Where my feet are, all of it, okay? It's the same thing with boxing. Why do I box with Wayne McCulloch, who's a world champion? Am I worthy of that? Am I ever going to be a great boxer? Of course not. But I like learning how to actually fight from a guy who fought who's really good. 
because technique, because you can show me all the shit I'm doing wrong. Everything I think is right is wrong. Tennis is exactly the same way. So I watch guys playing tennis on the, on the court. I can't watch their stroke. It's so offensive to me. And they're mad at themselves because they're hitting it in the net. Hey, dude, take one lesson. I took one lesson and the teacher goes, I'm sorry to say this, but you're doing everything wrong. That's great, though. It's the best. Or when I, when I meet with this woman, Betsy Braun, she goes, you're doing everything wrong. And I go, huh? And then she gives me a couple pointers. And my communication with my kids increases sevenfold and I'm sevenfold more effective. Now, why wouldn't you do that in your life? You don't know everything. There are people that have studied this stuff that can help you and make shit so much easier. And that's what I'm always amazed at, how people just somehow hold on. We all do it, but they hold on to their way of doing things. They don't want help and they hold on to their sort of patterns. Yeah, of course. And some of that's ego. I think a lot of it, maybe even the majority of it is ego. Yeah, but let go, man. Let it go. I'm tired of that too. Yeah. Ego's not working. You got to ask yourself, how is it going? This is like these people who get into relationships where they ensure their own failure. They date people that are unavailable or they date abusive people or whatever. What are you doing, man? I don't care. Hey, I don't give a shit about your psychology anymore. I don't care. Yeah. How old are you? You're 30. And then everything in your past doesn't matter anymore. I don't care. I do not care. I want technique. Let's fix this problem. I, one of my favorite questions is how's that working out for you? People get fucking angry when you say that because they're like, well, this thing, you know, and with her and it's different with her because this way and that way. And it's like, well, okay, how's that working out for you? And they're like, you know, it's shit, but how dare you? And I'm like, no, I mean, one of my rules with my friends is you can complain all you want, all you want, but if you ask for advice and I give it to you and you don't take it and then you have the exact same problem next week, you're not allowed to complain about that particular problem anymore because we're not even iterating at that point. You're just making the same mistake over and over. I think people like making, I think people are comfortable in that. I, I actually think that the biggest obstacle is that people don't want what they think they, they don't really want what they say they want. They layer a bunch of bullshit on their life. So they'll take a job that gives them no time to do what they really want. They'll get in a relationship that gives them no time to do what they really want. We all do this. The people that are not only can confront when they're doing a bunch of bullshit, but also having friends around you that call you on that stuff. I have good friends. I have friends who'll be like, hey, bro, I don't think you're working hard enough. And I'm 50 and I have friends like that. Yeah. And they're right. And it's cold truth. And you know you can't get mad at them for saying that because they're the most valuable friends that you have. I'm comfortable in all of it. Yeah. I, I'm not good at anything, okay? I'm good at stand-up. But I mean, even that. It's always an adjustment. It's always, oh, let's readjust my approach. Guess what? I'm, you come see me for one hour and I promise you, I promise you, I'll make you laugh as hard as you've ever laughed in your life. That's a fact. I don't even know you, and I'll tell you that. Do you have any doubts? Come, please. That's how long I've been doing stand-up. I have a bag of tricks, right? It's like being a magician, okay? But let me tell you, as soon as I shoot my special, I got to reinvent myself. I got to do it all over again. And every time I start, I'm not sure I can, maybe I've blown my load. Maybe right. I'm no longer funny. Like I can't do any more of this. Yeah, for the first like three months, it's rough. But that's what's beautiful about it. So everything is that way. You know, everything, I don't care what it is. What is it about that that makes you want to go back to the drawing board? Discovery, discovery. Because you had to do that your whole life, right? You grew up all over the world, yeah. right? So you probably had to make new friends all the time, mm -hmm. figure out how to go into a new culture all the time. Did you learn the languages in the places yeah. where you were? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of Arabic. I spoke French pretty well. But I went to international schools, which meant that the language was English. But, you know, you always had friends from everywhere. Sure. But yes, the answer is, I became a comic, I think, if I look back on it, my life was pretty chaotic. I had great parents, but it was a very chaotic upbringing, you know, if you compare it to most people, because I was moved every year. I remember when I was 32, I bought a house and I put things on the wall. 
And it dawned on me that I'd never put anything on a wall. Because there was no point. There's no point. There's no, there wasn't enough stability to even yes. bother, like, why decorate this? It's literally going to be, I don't want to pack this in eight months. That's right. So my father would come home and say, you know, I was born in the Philippines, and then I lived in Bombay, and then Cal- which is now Mumbai, and then Calcutta. Uh, my sister was born in Bombay, and then we moved to Lebanon, and then we moved to Pakistan, and then we moved back to Lebanon. And the war broke out, so yeah. we got evacuated to Greece, and then we lived in Saudi Arabia. So when you have a dog or you have, you're starting to make friends after a year, and your dad comes home and says, guess where we're going? We can either go to the Ivory Coast or Saudi Arabia. Uh, you're like, but I got my dog and I got my friends. Sorry, and bro. Thank God, by the way. And the reason I say that is because I had to learn very quickly. I love people, so I wanted people to like me. So there are two ways you get dudes to accept you. You're a jackass and you make them laugh and you better not be the last guy picked on the team. Got to be kind of an athlete a little bit. And thank God I was sort of athletic. And so I learned how to adapt very quickly. So when I finally went to boarding school in Massachusetts, because my family was still in Saudi Arabia, it was nothing for me. It was like new setting, new nothing. Then you have to learn how to kind of like plant roots. How do you even learn that process? Because For most of us, it comes naturally, right? I was born in one place, I stayed there for 17 years, roots happen. And then I moved to Germany as an exchange student and I was like, this sucks, this place is defective. And then after four months, I was like, oh wait, I can do this. But it's a hard ass process. And most of the people who were exchange students with me, they didn't make it the whole year. They left early. Yeah, it's very tough for people. For me, it was the norm. And then you start to embrace that sort of trauma or that fucking trauma is such a dramatic word. You embrace the chaos and you start to like the idea that something new is around the corner. There's discovery. Hunter Motz, who I do mixed martial art, mixed mental arts with, said that he was talking about Alvin Toffler, I think, who wrote a book. He's a futurist who said the people in this economy, in the 21st century economy, are those that that are going to learn unlearn and relearn. And that's what it's going to take. And I don't think it's ever been that different. I do think that we are now living in chaos to an extent. There's so many different voices and so many different forces pulling us in all different directions. So you better be able to adapt. You better be a river and not a pond. I agree. I think it's probably just as it's always been, like you said, but the speed is just amped up. It's been turned up to 11 from like three in the 80s. And that's okay. You know, if you talk to bodybuilders and you say, I want to build muscle, the first thing they say is you got to confuse your central nervous system. In other words, you can't do, if you do the same workout every day, your body's going to get used to it and you're not going to grow. So bodybuilders always know that every time they go into the gym, they're doing something different to confuse them. So their central nervous system is always playing catch up. In other words, they're not giving their muscles time to be efficient at the exercise because your muscles will learn how to be really efficient and you actually won't put on a lot of muscle. So what they do is they constantly confuse their muscles so that they keep tearing them down. The body has to keep building them back up. It's kind of an interesting metaphor for building armor, you know, or or kind of getting better at something. Yeah, if it translates, which it seems like it should, but it's always easy to assume like, well, the bodybuilding thing works this way, so maybe the social skills work that way too. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, listen, some things are not linear. Yeah. Right. Those are the hardest things when you have to be somewhat lateral. You can be very disciplined in life and you can win. You can be very efficient. You can be very efficient and you can be very uh, goal oriented and you can use that line and cross off all your goals. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll also be interesting. I think to be interesting, you have to be a little self-destructive. You have to be a little vulnerable all the time. Sure. You have to take the checkers board or the chessboard and throw it in the air. Sometimes you just got to say, fuck it. And do something reckless. It's sort of a comedian outlook on things, right? I, f- I feel like a, a lot of comedians say s- similar things. And it seems like sort of the environment that you came out of earlier, growing up in the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, and what was Lebanon, among other places, usually comedy 
and this is by no means an exhaustive survey, comes out of like, well, I came out of this simple life and now I'm doing comedy in the big city, but you kind of came from an even more complex environment and now you're, you're coming from the opposite direction. I would imagine you probably got a lot of flack coming from banker family moving around internationally and you're like, I wanna be a comedian and they're like, wait, where did we go wrong? Or like, don't do that. Go to an Ivy League Yeah, school. I knew that too, though. I knew my poor father and my mother, very smart people, by the way. I knew that it was going to be very hard for my father because he grew up poor. I was a dreamer, right? I, he just didn't understand me and he shouldn't have. You know, I have an imagination and I was, uh, I was just a weird kid, man. I mean, I sure. grew up so differently than this guy from Milwaukee who grew up sort of with blue collar roots. And here I was living overseas and my father was a banker and I never wanted for anything. And I was a happy-go-lucky jackass, right? I mean, that was my defense mechanism to be a complete idiot. So not a very good student or any of that stuff. So for him, he thought I was going to be a failure. And it wasn't. Oh, really? I mean, he was worried that he was going to have to support me the rest of his life because I wanted to be an actor. Of course I wanted to be an actor. I wanted all the attention. And I don't blame him. He was just, it was for a long time, it was very difficult for him until I got mad TV. Yeah. But again, I listened to that little voice. I knew that if I didn't and if I wasn't, and I remember I said to him, we were in South Bend, Indiana. We went and saw a Notre Dame game. He flew me out there. He had a little a Cessna, a little plane. And we flew out there together. And I said, hey, man, if I keep trying to be like you, a banker or whatever, I'm going to fail at life. I don't like myself because I'm doing that now. I was working at Lehman Brothers. I said, I don't like myself. I'm starting to not like myself because I'm not being honest. I have to be an actor. I could see his face, the horror. But, you know, he's such a wise guy. And he said, well, you got my money. I'll pay your rent. And I never forgot that, you know, because he figured his kid's probably going to fail, but I'm not going to have him make ends meet. I had to do that. I'm going to pay his rent in New York City so you can focus on theater school. And that's what I did. I never had to worry about having a job. I had the luxury of being able to call my dad when I needed money all the way into my 20s. But I could go to theater school and I could spend time using my imagination. My father recently said you would have been successful regardless because yeah. I'm so driven. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. My personality was always a goal-oriented personality. I always accomplished something, right? As a wrestler or was that whatever it was, I always, I always would find my way. I always wanted to be the guy people were talking about. I don't know if that's true. It certainly made it much easier. I was going to say that he must have seen something in you. Like, you're not lazy. You might have been a crappy student or yeah, mediocre never lazy. student, but you weren't lazy. No. By the time I said that to him, I had already been a pretty good high school wrestler. As a kid, I was really good at judo. I'd won tournaments, and I'd won a lot of stuff in, as a wrestler. And I, that's Wrestling's a hard sport. So he knew that I was sucking weight, and, and I did really well by my senior yeah. year. So he saw that. You know, He saw my record. And then I got my black belt in uh, Taekwondo. It's, uh, a lot of people have their black belt. It's not a big deal. But I worked hard for it. I mean, he could see that I... It's you know just what I'm saying? sticking with it for that long. Yeah, he could see that I would finish everything. I finished college. I I wasn't the guy who didn't finish things. So I think that he at least saw a track record of this guy who's maybe a, an idiot, but at least was able to finish things, uh, you know. Look, I came from a Wall Street background as well. I used to be an attorney working, Lehman Brothers was one of my clients. So your dad working for a bank like that, this isn't something where you go, man, I'm just so glad I'm working at this investment bank, making big changes to the world. Like he's doing it because he grew up poor, I yeah. imagine, and went, 
this is a lot of money and I can have a great life for my family. He knew you don't have to do the same thing. In fact, it's kind of the next step in the evolution that you don't have to rely so hard on making ends meet that you're working at a job, which maybe he didn't love every day. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, listen, there was a, probably a time when he resented my upbringing because the guy was the greatest father in the world, but I didn't know how to compare him to yeah, other dads. Yeah, you don't dads. have a basis for comparison yeah. at all. So he didn't feel appreciated. I don't blame him. I hear myself talking about wrestling and taekwondo. Sometimes I annoy myself. Like <laughs> if I could go back and talk to myself when I was 21 and I'm 50 now, I'd slap that guy a couple of times in the face just for the fuck of it. And I'd say, hey, you're nothing. Stop being cocky because you're nothing and you know it. And then I'd say, uh, learn what not to think about and try to focus on one thing at a time. What does that mean, learn what not to think about? I think there's probably some serious value in there. I never heard that before. So you grow up thinking that there's a great deal of deficit in your personality or in your repertoire or in your persona in general. And so what you do is you say, well, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this. But in fact, and I think that there is a great deal of value in realizing that you know nothing and that everything takes work and, and the universe works that way. Everything takes technique and skill and daily attendance. Okay. So if you want to be good at anything, whether it's jujitsu or the piano, you better practice every day under good tutelage. Okay. And certain teachers can really help you make leaps and bounds versus others, but you're always going to go through plateaus. You're always going to go through regressions and then you'll have times when you make incredible progress, okay? So understand that every day, sometimes nothing happens, sometimes you regress, but that's what happened that day. Anytime you're trying to accomplish something, it's one continuous mistake. It's always gonna be one continuous mistake and keep readjusting your approach until you get a little closer. I don't believe in any quick fixes. I don't believe in any transformations overnight. I don't believe in any transformations after a year. I think that you can make real progress, but just please understand that everything's a verb. Your relationship, your body, your accomplishments, it's all a verb. Nothing's a noun. There's no getting there, right? It goes back to what we were talking about before. You are going to be distracted and you're going to think that you've got to do all these things first before you do that or whatever it might be. I believe that mental toughness comes from learning what not to indulge in. So I'm having a bad day. My feelings got hurt over here. You can choose, you can choose to think about that and indulge that. Or you can choose to not think about that and just take that energy, all it is is energy, and refocus it on whatever you want to accomplish. So I've been doing the Goldbergs for three years. It's been awesome. They gave me a spinoff, which was my own TV show with Tim Meadows and Neil Long and Anna Gasteyer and Olivia Octavia Spencer was doing the voiceover. I mean, we had an all-star cast and these two great kids and it was an incredible pilot with Adam Goldberg and Mark Furick who wrote on The Family Guy. I mean, it was an all-star group of people that we did a pilot that tested higher than the Goldbergs. Okay, this is from Adam Goldberg himself. It tested higher than ABC's hit. My character at Sony tested 58. I think the average sitcom character gets 45. My character was 58. The whole thing. It was all a success. It was the biggest thing in the world. You're looking at like a pretty bright. Dude, it was worth a million dollars for me after taxes. Okay. It didn't go. It just didn't go. They Everything just made the, it and it didn't work yeah, out. Yeah. And, and as an actor at 50, let me tell you something. You don't get a lot of shots like that where they, they make a show around you. That might be my only shot. So I'm in Denver. I get the call. Unfortunately, they didn't pick us up. Not even that long ago. That would have devastated me. Or it would have just been such a bummer because I would have thought to myself, maybe this is my, I would have asked all the wrong questions. What if this is my last shot? Right. What if this will never happen again? What if, you know, 
I heard the news. I went for a walk, called a couple of people who really wanted to know and gave them the news. And then you know what I did? I went and worked out like a motherfucker. I worked out and then I sat down and I started writing. I just sat down and used that energy and I just started writing a bunch of new jokes. And then I went and destroyed. I, I was in Denver and I had a sold out crowd, two sold out shows, and I fucking destroyed that room. And then I came back and I wrote some more. I wrote more. And I'm telling you that I haven't thought about it since. I really haven't. Everybody's like, oh my God, it must be such a bummer. No, it's not. It's the business. It's like playing football. I hurt my knee. I'm not going to indulge in my knee. It doesn't matter. You just keep moving forward. So I learned what not to think about. I learned what not to indulge in. How long did that take you? I'm 50. Yeah. Forever. But it doesn't have to. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and his guest, Brian Callen. We'll be right back after these brief announcements. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Now let's get back to Brian Callen. I looked at your IMDb and I was like, 50? No, that guy isn't 50. This is all messed up. And then I looked at the amount of stuff that you've been in and I know how a little bit of how auditioning works here in Hollywood, not very much. But I thought, if you've been in that much stuff, that means you've auditioned for 10 times this amount of stuff. Oh, dude, or I've, more. I've failed 1 million times in this business over 23 years. So I like your attitude. Thank you for talking about how tight my skin is. That's what yeah, I've been taking. Yeah, yeah, take it out. Yeah, want. yeah. But that's the idea. It took me a long time, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Again, these are just ideas. All of us are capable of applying these ideas. When you hear somebody older like me and you're a young man and he says, learn what not to think about. And by the way, I got that from Elliot Hulse, who's a strength oh, yeah. and conditioning sure. coach. And I heard him say this on a video. And I was 40. I don't know. Maybe I was young, uh, older, 43. And I was like, why didn't I ever think about that? Then I extrapolated. And I was like, everything is a process of deletion. Everything is. When you write a script, the huge part is what are you not putting in? So much of thinking is that way. So much of thinking, so much of learning and getting better at something is just do what you're told. Get out of your own way. Relax. Let the racket do all the work. When you're boxing, just relax. Let your arms go. You know, don't stop thinking. Stop thinking. I think Einstein said thinking is the enemy of perfection. I don't like these platitudes. I don't like bumper stickers. Yeah. It doesn't help you at all. We riff on that all the time. But there are ideas. There are perspectives and there are techniques. Another great technique that I heard Tony Robbins one time say, I was going to make fun of him. I listened to every one of his tapes because I was writing a TV show about a, a self-help guru. And I ended up becoming like, I was like, oh my God, this guy's way too smart to make fun of. And he actually yeah. had a lot to say. Again, I'm very skeptical of the self-help gurus. Just do the work, do the job. But he said something really interesting. He said, most people have a primary question in their brain. And that primary question is usually very unhelpful. It's usually like, am I lovable? What if I fail? Yeah, well, not even that. I mean, how am I getting famous would be a better question. But, yeah. you know, in other words, that might be the wrong priority. But yeah, what if I can't do this? What if I suck? And he said, just reprogram your brain to ask a better question. Ask an empowering question. What action do I have to take today to get closer to who I want to be? Who do I really want to be? It's a huge question. Well, what, what do I really want? The answer, when you write a script, John Truby's book, The Anatomy of Story, if you ever write, that's what you should read. And he said the character is based on, the through line is the character has a desire character wants something, but they give that up in a good movie for what they actually need. Sure, for what they need, yeah. Yeah, so what you want versus what you need are two very different things. I Often think that's some relationship or romance for Hollywood purposes, but it does bring up a good point. Why strive so hard in the acting arena when all the articles, all the research is like, my heart's in stand-up, I love stand-up, I can make money doing stand-up, I make myself feel better from rejection by going to do stand-up. Why even bother with all the other stuff? Why not just focus only on stand-up? Because self-expression is too fun in many other different forms. Because acting has come to me and I love it and I love working with people, especially like on a show like the Goldbergs, they're all hilarious and, and because I can. So I love acting. I love stand-up, which is its own thing. It's a solitary experience, but acting is a collaborative experience. So I want both. Why do I work hard at my tennis game? 
why do I spend a fortune paying pros to hit with me? And Which will never return on that investment or I said, monetarily. Well, the guy said recently, he said, yeah, you could be a level five player and play in tournaments. Could I? Awesome. Yeah, I guess if I really applied myself, do I don't give a shit. I just love thinking I'm good. I like watching myself get better. I love hitting in a way that I never thought was possible. It has nothing to do with anybody watching. It's just that I'm then applying that to boxing. Like I never thought, three years ago, I was like, I want to learn how to box, right? I want to learn how to fight. Like I want to get in the ring and move around. So I'm not going to beat good guys and it doesn't make sense, but it's really fun to hit dudes and and spar and my I'm nervous and I'm wearing a headgear and you get hit and sometimes it hurts. I know there's head trauma and stuff, but it's terrifying. As long as you're, you're not getting beat down every I'm, week. I'm not, you know, listen, sometimes you get hit and it's going to hurt, but I'm not fighting guys. You get hurt when you spar with guys who aren't good. Aren't good, It's yeah. the pros who are just tapping you and showing you shit that you don't get hurt. Sometimes you might get clipped a little, but they're not going to beat up on you. I like doing a lot of things. Sure, why not focus on stand-up? Maybe I'd be the greatest. I don't know. Who knows? When you focus on just one thing and you're obsessive. I'm not that kind of person. You want to obsess about multiple things at once. I just like, I have a lot of different interests. You know, my podcast, all that stuff. With physical skills, it sounds like you are with me with like languages and stuff like that. I love, I'll pick up a new language, any excuse that I can. And people always go, why are you taking Chinese lessons? And I'm like, well, I, I like being able to speak Chinese and getting better at Chinese. Why do you want to learn how to read the German equivalent of the New Yorker in native German. I don't know, because my German level's been stuck where it is since high school, and it's kind of stupid to leave it bothers you, hang- right? It does. It bugs you. It, it sticks bugs- in your head. That was what was going on with tennis and with boxing. Like, it bothered me. It was like it was stuck, and I was like, I was in Biarritz, and I played tennis, and I sucked. And I was watching these women, these professional satellite pros play, and I was like, I want to play like that. I want to be able to hit like that. And I was embarrassed. I was fucking embarrassed that I was yeah. hitting the way I was. I was embarrassed. It sounds so stupid, but I was like, I'm going to learn how to hit really well. I'm done. It bothered me, so yeah. I, I addressed it. Were you like that as a kid, though, too? Was it like, all right, I got to keep going in this direction? Or was it just scattered? I probably was. I mean, if, if I think back on it, I was. I didn't have the opportunity. I wish I had. I was just moved around too much, so I didn't have any. I always wanted to be in, into karate. I wanted to be like learn how to fight. Then I found judo, but I, I really wanted to learn how to kick and punch. And then I, when I was 14, I literally went to boarding school so I could be a wrestler. This is so silly, but I wanted to be a big muscular guy. Of course, I wasn't, and I never would be. But in my mind, I was like, I want to wrestle. I saw this movie and this guy was a wrestler and he was all, he had these big muscles and I was like, that's sure. fucking badass. This guy can pick dudes up and throw them on their head. And I was always skinny and, <laughs> and, and my father was big and I always felt like so, I was ashamed of my frailty. I was ashamed of being a skinny boy who couldn't, I'm a type A personality probably. Yeah, I, given what's going on here, I feel like that's accurate. Yeah, and so I wanted to be, um, I watched these two kids fight. They were big and strong. And I said, I wouldn't know what to do. And it bothered me that I was afraid that I didn't know how to defend myself. So the first thing I did at 14 years old is I went to boarding school and I joined the wrestling team. Terrified. But I had had judo experience. I knew how to do things, but it didn't help me in wrestling. And I remember running stairs and I was this skinny. I think I wrestled at 110 pounds at 14 or even lighter. The point is that sometimes you do things because there's a deficit. There's a deficit. I don't think it's imperative to like yourself. Everything I've done is because I don't like myself. Everything I've done is because I think I'm incomplete. At 50, I work out and I I look in the mirror naked, hoping something's going to change. Oh, it'll change. Yeah, it'll change, man. (laughs) That's right. That's what I hear. It's ridiculous, but you're probably the same way. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that you're German. 
is stuck where it was at high school. Yeah. Of course you want to get better. Yeah. Why? Who the fuck knows? Yeah. So you can have it, right? There's no real utility behind it. I take Skype lessons and things like that. And teachers always go, so what are you going to use this for? And I go, nothing. I'm probably just going to speak German sometimes, mostly to you. And they go, so you want to learn how to do complicated kind of like reading on philosophy or political science that even Germans are like, ah, you know, it's an acquired taste, this magazine You're Der Spiegel. You're reading like Kant and Goethe. Yeah, in like Der Spiegel, which is like the kind of New Yorker or whatever. You can just click translate on the top of the page. It'll translate to English. They have English editions. And I'm like, that's not what I want to do, though. I want to go to Germany and fool people into thinking like, oh, this guy's an educated German. And he's like, why? And I'm like, there's no reason. I get that. I get it. I totally get it. And I think it's great for your brain. I, I was speaking to two actresses yesterday who are having a hard time in this business. What a surprise. And this business is fucking rough on actresses. Yeah, oh, it's actually. As soon as you start getting a little older and losing your delicious, God damn it, this business is brutal. And I said to both of them, I said, look, man, I don't have any advice on this business. I don't know how to do anything, but I do think that you should learn how to have a full life. And I think sometimes when you create the architecture, the scaffolding for a full life where you're in a dance class and you've got good friends and you're eating good food and you're, you're in a cooking class and you're making your life, even your little apartment, perfect. You're taking care of your garden. You're tending to your garden. You're taking care of your body and the place you live and it's sunny and it's clean and you're organizing salsa lessons and you're doing these things. I promise you, I promise you that your career will get better regardless. Your life will. You know, when I stopped trying and when I stopped looking, things started happening for me. Do you think it's because you stopped looking so hard or do you think it's because you started to focus on other things that weren't driving I, I don't know. I wish I had a formula for it. I think that it just maybe was, it created an open mindset. It created a creative mindset. It just got me excited and passionate that I don't have enough time in the day. The joy I get from working on my stroke in tennis. It's ridiculous, but it's exactly like the German thing. Yeah. It has absolutely no bearing on the physical world. I just love surprising myself. That's what matters. I like surprising myself. I like doing things that scare me. There's something about shoring up perceived weaknesses that isn't necessarily good for making your strengths stronger, but is good for you overall. Like Jenny, who you met, my wife, we just got married last week. She's like, we got to do a dance at the wedding because I want to do like a choreographed dance. And that's my worst freaking nightmare, man. Like I was very against it, but I thought I can't just say no because I'm being a bad sport. I got to figure out how to do this. So I went in the first four lessons. I probably said I hate every minute of this every five minutes. And the teacher was like, I'm just going to suffer this guy's bullshit for a while. Is it are you doing ballroom while. or salsa? It was ballroom, yeah. I did salsa. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you right now, like, I went through these dance classes, and I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. And then in class number five or six out of 13 or 12, I went, oh, I can do this, and I'm getting better at it. And my growth curve hockey sticked up to where the teacher went, I've never seen a transformation like this. You actually like dancing. You can do it. And I remember going home and thinking, this is something I literally thought in my whole life I would always avoid and never do. Wow. And wow. now I enjoy it. I'm not trying to be a competitive ballroom dancer. No, but I, I get it. I get it. We're on the same page. It's awesome. Yeah. And isn't it funny how you try something like that? Oh, my God. If you guys ever get a chance, anybody's listening, the teaching company has, I think it's Daniel Robinson. He's a professor both at Oxford and at Georgetown. He's retired now. And he has this incredible series called um, The Greatest Ideas in Philosophy. He talks about how there are plenty of examples of mathematicians who, you know, spend their lifetime in a room 
trying to come up with an impossible equation. And in fact, sometimes when you deal in theoretical math, even the question itself, like, does this equation exist? Even that's something that has to be proved. Sometimes the question has to be proved, right? I mean, they're dealing with very heavy yeah, shit. theoretical. Sometimes the answer is 350 pages long. Yeah. Anyway, so this guy sits in a room all day and comes out and says, I've thought up this theoretical equation. I think I've got the answer. It bears no relevance on the physical world, but, oh, by the way, I'm going to die now. And he dies. And so there it is. It sits in a book. And then about 100 years later, when they're trying to put a rover on Mars or whatever, or they're trying to mine for minerals at the bottom of the sea eight miles deep, that mathematical equation turns out to be directly relevant to the physical process of getting that drill eight miles down or that rover on Mars or whatever. And that's what I think is incredible. That is is incredible. That eventually this metaphysical idea that originated in someone's brain that came to him in a dream in 1873 now in 2017, bears direct relevance to the physical world. The question that he had answered didn't exist yet, so he just put it in a book and then went to sleep and never woke up. Now, now what does is. that tell you about God or whatever you want to say? Yeah, human potential is, is incredible. Well, it's incredible, right? So what does that tell you about all of it? Maybe these answers have always existed and we're just here to discover them. The other, the other way I think about creation is like Flannery O'Connor who died of MS at 39 in the 30s, great writer, uh, short stories. And she said, I sit at my typewriter every morning not to write, but in case something happens. So the idea is that if you're in the business of self-expression, whether you're a writer, whether you're a musician or a painter or whatever it might be, an actor, I don't know that whatever comes with all the accomplishment matters. I think what uh, matters is that you keep showing up and you keep seeing what works itself through you is the story that you're writing, it already exists. Maybe it's up to you to show up every day until it keeps revealing itself to you piece by piece. I think that's a good way to look at art. I think it's a good way to look at your life. I think that you keep showing up and you keep taking honest actions and you keep telling yourself the truth. Slowly but surely, you will put yourself together the way you are supposed to be. That's maybe my philosophy. I like that. I think for a lot of folks out there, especially younger people, they go, okay, that's great. And I'll probably think that way when I'm 52. But right now, where do I even begin? Jordan Peterson, who everybody should listen to on Joe Rogan's podcast, he did two of them. He said, start by telling the truth. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. He said, first of all, don't try to change the world and the economy. You have no business doing that. You're 18, 20, 25. You don't know shit about the fucking economy. You don't know shit about the world. But keep your room clean. How clean is your room? How clean are you? How clean are you? Are you taking care of yourself? Worry about yourself, bro. Worry about your circle, you. Are you in order? Get yourself in order. He's got this thing, this self-authoring thing that's very interesting. Yeah, we use a lot of that at AOC. All It's amazing. Get yourself in order. Get yourself together. Stop trying to change the world. You don't know anything. I understand that, you know, there's this idea to protest and stuff, and there are things worthy of protest. I get it. Get yourself in order, and you'll have something to say. What do I say to young people? Learn what not to think about. Sit down and ask yourself, if you don't know what you want to do, ask yourself what you'd like people to say about you. Maybe dream and see what what it is. Investigate, broaden your passion. Learn about what it is to be a journalist or learn what it is, what the reality behind being an actor is or what are you really after? Ask yourself those questions. It's important. And if you don't even know that, man, I believe in accomplishment. I don't care. Go get your black belt in jujitsu. If you feel like a 
pansy, go to a jujitsu class and just get your black belt, get your blue belt, just start training, learn how to box. If you learn how to play the piano, it's all the same. There's no difference between piano and jujitsu. There's no difference in what happens to your brain and what happens to you as a person. I don't care if it's a soft art or a hard art. I think a lot of people, when they shore up these little weaknesses or these perceived weaknesses, which a lot of people, they kind of nay that. They're like, oh, you know, just focus on what you want to be great at, forget everything else. I agree with you. I don't really believe in that because I think when you start taking care of those areas that are bugging you, it frees up bandwidth in the background. You know, if you think, oh, you know, I'm, a, I'm walking around, I'm a little bit in fear, I get intimidated by people. So you do the jujitsu thing or the judo thing or whatever, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Other things start to unlock in your brain and in your psyche. And you meet people. Well, yeah. And you too, meet interesting, like-minded people who are motivated and you'll make really good friends. That's the other thing. You'll create a community which is so important and so underrated. Oh my God, having a community. I don't have any friends, good. Go do something you wanna do. I'm telling you, go join that salsa class with your wife. Take that boxing class. I don't care what it is, man. I'm telling you, you'll meet people, you'll create a community. You wanna play the drums? Learn how to play the drums well enough so you can start a, a silly cover band. What a blast. Yeah, something that's not serious. Like I know a Thea, there's a 50-year-old woman who is, they were talking about who's as good as anybody right now. She just said, I'm going to be good. She's 55 now, started at 50. And she's so good in the drums, so good, and plays like every song. It's possible. And she just started for the hell of it yes, at 50. Yes, 50. I always want to play the drums. So she's like, and I have time. So she practiced three hours a day. Not that hard on the drums. It just becomes addictive. Now she plays in bands, and she's so good. Do you play an instrument? I, I take drums. You take drums as well? The answer is no. We'll be right back with Brian Callen after these brief announcements. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to our interview with Brian Callen. What does your creative process look like when you're trying to create stuff? You said at one point you sat down after a frustrating rejection, you started writing new stuff. Obviously, you can't just rely on getting rejected harshly for creativity. That would be a miserable way to do it. Do you have ways that you kind of get in, inspired by that or does it just happen? I mean, uh, sometimes it's very difficult. I don't have any uh, sacred space for work. So I think work is a mindset. So... I'm looking at you and I'm going to look over at that camera. That's the difference between work. Here I'm talking to you and here's work. Like, do you understand what I mean? So all I'm doing is I'm talking to you and now I have to think about, I have to solve a problem. Really creativity is solving problems, right? Sure. You're trying to solve a problem. If you're writing a story, you got to, how do I get my character out of this corner? I'm just going to look over here and start thinking about the character. I'm not going to put anything on it. I'm not going to put anything on it. I'm not going to wait till the temperature in the room where I've eaten or the dishes are out of the sink. I'm just going to start daydreaming. We all daydream. It's the same shit. You want to get better at anything, You a lot of times it happens in your brain. Like I'll watch slow motion video of Roger Federer hitting and try to mimic it. You're like, what are you doing? I'll do that for like a half hour. So my creative process is um, I just start. I don't put anything on it. Are you developing the same kind of intensity right now in your kids or trying to at all? Uh, you know, you have to be very careful with yeah. that. So what I do is with my children, so when I watch my daughter play tennis and my son. How old son, is she? She's nine. She's an athlete, but she's intense. And your son, how old is he? My son's five. My, my daughter's intense. My daughter is very competitive with herself. Where does that come from? Not from me. It comes really? from her mother. I'm not a competitive. I'm not competitive. I don't have to win. I never I gotcha. think that. That's that, Maybe that hurts me, but. It's more personal with me. But the other day she was playing tennis and she was she was having a meltdown. She was like, ah, ah, and, but she wouldn't quit. 
she kept hitting. She kept hitting. So I say to her, I read this in a book, I'll say, I think it was in the talent code, which is an amazing- Daniel Coyle. Yes. And I'll say, I love watching you play. I could just watch you play all day. And I don't give her any advice. I let the teacher do that. I don't want to be an overbearing father and I don't want to be a trophy dad. And I have to let her find her way. But what I can do is create like an inspiring and fun atmosphere. So I'll go, I love watching you play. And then she had their meltdown. And I sat down next to her and I go, I got to tell you, man, I'm so impressed with you. It was maybe the best lesson I've seen. She goes, what? And I go, well, just like you were crying and having a meltdown because it's so frustrating. Tennis is so frustrating. I throw my racket, but you didn't even quit. You kept hitting, even through the tears. It was nuts. How'd you do that? How did you do that? And then my son, who is a complete dreamer, and you can't get a five-year-old to pay attention. It's the end of the day. He's tired. He got 10 in a row toward the end. It was a 10-minute, 15-minute lesson. That's all he can handle. But I was like, I can't believe you got better on the end. How did you do that at the end? Like you were like playing around, then at the end you got 10 in a row. That's unbelievable to me. And so I just kind of marvel at how great they are. And then I'll say to my wife when they're there and they can hear me, but they think I'm not, I'll be like, I got to tell you, man, Stella, her focus, she just doesn't quit. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. She was having a meltdown and she still wouldn't quit. And she did better in her last one, even though I could never do that. The same thing with my son. So I create a mythology. Sure, I love that idea. I think a lot of people try to directly program their kids with here's why this is important and here's why you need to do this. It just ends up coming out in adulthood in all these weird ass ways. People wonder why teenagers are all screwed up all the time and half of it's that childhood programming just kind of starting to rot and crack. So it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. There's a way to do things and that technique doesn't work as well as, and I didn't know how to do what I'm talking about. I just talked to people who are experts. Those aren't my ideas. I'm not smart. I don't come up with that. I don't know how to fucking do that. I read about it and I talked to people about it and it made sense. And once I read the books and I I listened to people, I was like, that's how you do it. There is a way to be more effective. You can teach a kid how to ride a bike and swim that fast, or you can take three years. And I don't believe in any way in being a tyrant. I don't believe in domination. I think it's all a lie. And I'm a pretty dominant alpha or I'm an A type A personality, or at least I talk a big game. If I'm around a bunch of comedians or people who've never fought before, you should hear me talk about boxing and wrestling. I'm a tough guy. When I'm around real fighters, friends of mine who are real fighters, I know to shut up. I know the difference. But the point is that you have to be aware of that. And you have to know that you're not a tough guy, no matter who you are. Conor McGregor is a real tough guy. He's a great MMA fighter. Around Chris Weidman, or Brennan Schaub, or Cain Velasquez, he is a monkey compared to those apes. You know what I'm saying? There's a pecking order in life. Yeah, sure. So don't think you're tough. I hate a bully, and I hate men who try to impose their will and dominate. It doesn't work. It's artificial. It's an artificial thing. It's You're doing that in your tiny arena, but there are plenty of people that could do that to you. Jordan Peterson was saying that any society, and I would extrapolate to any family, that is ruled by the biggest, strongest, loudest voice with a club is not stable. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I think whenever we've talked with MMA guys and things like that, or I'll post something and I'll I'll write like some comment about how arrogance is not really truly confident because it's always slotted in this weird sort of arbitrary hierarchy, people almost always universally reply with some insert name of MMA champion here. Conor McGregor is a common retort. Well, look at Conor McGregor. That guy talks a lot of smack and he's really tough. And I'm like, I bet you, and I write this, I have no proof of this, so thank you for this. I bet you that Conor McGregor, when he's around other fighters, does not sit there talking a ton of shit to a bunch of people. Conor McGregor is a very humble man. 
Conor McGregor is also a really good guy. Now, I know that from people who know him. I've only met him once. He did my podcast once, but that's not a good gauge. I know people that know him, and I've seen how he behaves in defeat and in victory. And people love that guy. And he's great to his team. He's great to people. He's a very, very good man. I'm not to mention great and courageous. I mean, he's greatness. And I love the guy. But yes, he may come across as cocky, but nobody works harder. I said to him, I go, where do you get your confidence? He goes, I work harder than anybody else. And I said, everybody works hard. He goes, they think they do. They don't. You know, whether or not that's true, that guy, I can promise you, he puts in the work. I think it's because Connor's so honest with himself. Like he knows when he steps in that octagon, he's done everything he can. He's done everything he can. And he's going to do everything he can. And there's something about that. That's a little scary, though, because it's always scary. If you then fail, you of can't course. go, well, you know, I didn't really focus Nobody on Nobody braver this. than that guy, dude. He yeah. puts himself on the line. He talks the biggest game in front of the world, Ireland. If he loses, oh, my God. You'll never hear the end of it. I've spent enough time with him and Nate Diaz. Nate's a big man. Connor's much shorter than me. Connor's maybe 5'9", 165. How tall are you? I'm almost six feet. Okay. You can see it on my Instagram where he's standing next to me and you can see how much taller. I'm not a big guy by any means. And Nate is much bigger than me frame-wise. Longer arms and everything else. Connor fights him. And me and Brendan Child looked at each other and covered our mouth and we were like, he's just too small. He's not big enough for Nate. Nate's just too big. He hits too hard. He's jujitsu. It's just, he's just a bigger man, bigger frame. Connor, they were all telling him, don't do it. And Connor said, I'm going to fight him again at 170. At 170. And everybody's like, oh, no, not again. Don't let him do it. This is his ego. He comes in and he beats him up, knocks him down three times, I think. And a war. Of course, Nate gave it back. But this guy is amazing. Do you understand what kind of guts that takes? I mean, it's incredible. There are guys I don't want to see him fight, Khabib Nurmagomedov. I would never have wanted to see him fight Frankie Edgar. There are certain guys. But this dude is special. He's special. And, you know, he believes he's great. When you fight him, those fighters, they fall into the trance, too. This guy's bigger than me. He's bigger, a bigger phenomenon. He's a bigger force. He's a life force. Destiny is on his side. You know, it's very hard to fight a guy who who really believes that he is the second coming. It's like some ISIS yes, shit here. They get in there and they're like, all of a sudden they're in their head. All of a sudden they're rushing. All of a sudden they're not throwing. All of a sudden they're, they're, they're forgetting to, to circle left or they're forgetting to circle right. And they're forgetting their whole game plan. Yeah, they're buying Eddie Alvarez was like, I knew I was supposed to do this and I forgot it. When the lights and everything and that guy who embraces that role and takes the responsibility on full heartedly of being great, so much, I think, of being great. Like Ali would talk about that. Ali said, I'm the greatest in the world. Well, he said, I'm scared to death every time I get in there. I'm talking to myself. That's to me. He was putting himself in a trance when he was in that way in Sonny Liston. Sonny thought he was actually crazy. Sonny thought he was going to bite him. Because Ali's pulse, he kept trying to get at him. And he was screaming at him. And then Sonny was like, this dude's crazy, man. Like, I'm afraid of him. I think he might bite me. Yeah, that's Ali edge. worked himself up into a trance. But it was for him, not for anybody else. He had to do that for himself because guess what? He was terrified. I don't know. And I know some great fighters personally. I don't know a fighter who's not terrified when they walk in that octagon. I know a couple who might not be, but maybe they're not smart enough to be. Self-aware enough to yeah. know they're actually scared. But I know the baddest guys on the planet, from Donald Cerrone, they're all terrified. Looking back, and I mean, you're on TV, you're doing great in pretty much every arena of your life right now, even in your relationships and with your and kids. And in bed. Like, that's, what, that's the rumor. Sorry, I that's the rumor. shouldn't have said that. Is there anything that you've looked back on from the last 50 years and go, shit, I wasted so much time on that, whether it's a thought process or a skill? Relationships, or, certain yeah. relationships with women. 
Okay, fine, yeah. Yeah. My regret is I just didn't work hard enough at a lot of things, maybe. But maybe that's because I was supposed to just be a comic. I work hard at that. It's easy to, to look at my law career and go, you know, if I'd worked a little harder, I could still be a lawyer. And it's like, that would be awful. I don't want that. I always say, I should have wrestled in college. Okay, so I would have wrestled in college. All right. Dot, 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 MMA. And, and I could have said, I wrestled D1 in college at American University. Okay. And then I'd probably be sitting here saying, and I'd have cauliflower ears, and I'd say, yeah, I wrestled in college, and I had a 500 career or whatever it was. And I, I said, well, I, I wish I had worked a little harder, or whatever I would have said. And then I would probably have the regret that I didn't take drumming or the piano, or I didn't act enough or whatever the fuck it was. The motivation behind that is wrong. It's just it would be because I want to say I wrestled. So yeah. people thought I was a little tougher than I am. Polish that trophy on the mantle one more yeah, time. Yeah, I want people, I would want people to think I'm a little tougher than I am. That's a not a reason to do something. I couldn't agree more on that. I think a lot of people look at opportunity cost and they go, well, shoot, should I also be focusing on that? And the, the reason I'm drawing this distinction is because you and I are talking about shoring up weakness, competing with yourself to get these new skills that aren't even that useful or could be useful but aren't ever gonna be our career, for example. And I wanna be really clear that you don't have to go around learning and mastering every single thing that you might be interested in or that you should think that you're interested in because you will drive yourself batshit crazy doing it. Also keep in mind that getting good at one thing is the same as getting good at anything. So the process you go through to get really good at tennis or boxing or piano or German, there are differences, of course, but you will glean a great deal from any endeavor that you try to get really good at. You'll have to confront deficits in your own personality, in your own belief system, and even in what you are afraid of. You'll have to confront all those things to get better and to make the next step. I believe that. And I think that there's a great book by Josh Waitzkin called The Art of Learning. And he got really good at jujitsu and he was a chess master. And he said when he was playing chess, he was practicing jujitsu. When he was practicing jujitsu, he was getting better at chess. There's a mindset that sort of can transfer. Yeah, and, and connecting lessons yeah. from one thing to another. Accomplishment, learning how to accomplish, learning how to learn is the point. Maybe also leaving with a deeper understanding, and which may be another way of saying you have more wisdom. I think people that have accomplished things and come up against themselves develop wisdom. You can always tell when somebody's wise. You end up asking questions. You end up feeling more comfortable in their presence, right? Sure. Wisdom must be earned. Wisdom is not something that's given to you. And I think wisdom also is part of maybe the manifestation of coming to terms with your own limitations and accepting them. Being a person who's sort of, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but like addicted to accomplishment in many ways and, and always going after something and always working on something, is there any advice that you might give to somebody to let go of something that's not serving them? Because it's really easy to go, no, now I can't give up. I just heard Jordan and Brian talk about getting these skills done and working super hard. Well, so that goes back to telling the truth. Yeah. That goes back to saying, what did I just say about wrestling? I want to be a wrestler. Probably for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So I could be a little bit more accepted in the group of MMA fighters I admire. A little more street cred. Yeah. Or just, you know, having stories about being a wrestler. And maybe I would have then gone on to get my black belt in jujitsu. I think all of those things are probably, if I'm really honest with myself, for the wrong reasons. I think. I was jujitsu is a beautiful art, and I actually should have gotten my black belt in jujitsu instead of my blue belt. By the time I came to it, I didn't care as much. I just I was too busy. I had enough trouble getting good at stand-up. And acting took a lot of my time and failing at it. What I'm saying is be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself, man. First of all, 
I'm never going to run punts back in the NFL. Yeah. I'm never going to be a great singer. I knew that. When I was an actor, I looked in the mirror and I realized that I was basically a white medium guy. There's not a whole lot of desire. Like, like, this is the guy we're looking there's for. There's nothing about me that I'm sorry, physically, when I was young or now, where people go, that's the look we're looking for. No, that's the generic guy we can put anywhere. That's why I started doing stand-up. I was never going to be Christopher Walken and this great actor. You know, I've had great moments on stage and in acting class, but I was funny and I knew I was funny and I'd always been funny. Then I learned how to really become professionally funny. That was the path. I, I got honest with myself. How do you get honest with yourself? Like if you were listening to some kid who's 25 talk about, I'm going to do this and I'm going to fight in the octagon and I'm going to do this acting thing. And you're like, man, I know you're doing this because you think it's going to get you women. It's going to get you respect that you never had as a kid. These are all reasons that you really need to take a good cold hard look at that. What advice would you give that kid? So there was a guy who I was writing with briefly and he was writing the script and I saw a note above his typewriter, his computer, it said, think of all the houses, cars, and bitches you're going to get when you finish this script. And I'm oh, not exaggerating. Man. Nothing ever happened for him. That sure. was more than 10 years ago. It was 15 years ago. And I, I just looked at him and I realized that this can't be the motivation, brother. The motivation has got to be, listen, I used to see the shit in acting class. I would go to my friend's house. I mean, somebody in my acting class, we'd be working on a scene for acting class. And these people would have Time magazine and they put their face on it and it'd be, it'd be like a dream board. Oh, man. They'd make a dream yeah. board. Don't get me like started with, on With those these things. affirmations. Sure. And I don't believe in that shit. No. I think it's high-tech procrastination. It is. And I think you're, again, oh, you want to be famous, meaning you want everybody to look at you. So you want the swimming pool and the big house. I get it. I do too. We all want money, but I don't know how into acting you are. And this is why your acting isn't so good. And this is why you're derivative because you're not an actor. I was always seduced by, when I saw Robert De Niro in Raging Bull, it changed my fucking life. I couldn't sleep. When I listened to Johnny 99, the live version of Springsteen, and then I start, got into Springsteen and listened to Greetings from Asbury Park and that poetry he was writing when he was in his 20s. I've never been the same, bro. The overwhelming feeling of, I guess, a combination of joy and sadness that great art fills you with or that sort of glory, the thing that makes you cry. You're not sad, but you're crying. That makes you feel overwhelmingly generous. That makes you feel like that's called inspiration. That's a religious experience, man. It's a mystical religious experience. That's what changed my life. Those were those seminal moments where I said, if I don't get close to this feeling, if I can't somehow get my fingers wet, dip my toe in this sacred pool, then I'm going to die, man. My life is going to be wasted. I don't want to waste my life. I was terrified of regret and terrified of wasting my life. That's where the motivation should come from, because you have to do this for the sake of its own doing. What did Schiller say? Man is never more himself than when at play play being that which you do for its own sake, that's what motivates me. When did you have that experience? Because I think there's a lot of people listening right now that are going, oh shit, I've never had that. What am I gonna do yes, now? Yes, you have, first of all, if you think about it. And if you haven't, go get it. Look, and it's not for everyone. Art is not for everyone. Not everybody's creative. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let me tell you something right now. We need good nurses. We need good teachers. And being a teacher is creative. We need good nurses. 
good cops, good police officers who know the difference. We need these people, firefighters. We need those people. Man, and don't kid yourself. If you're good at building kitchens, you're worth your weight in fucking gold. If you know how to build something that's got integrity that you swear by and you do sublime work, you are worth your weight in gold. If you know how to put in flooring like nobody else, you have no idea how valuable you are. I'm having a hell of a time with my house. And when you get a good craftsman, oh my God, oh my God, you're doing your job. When I bring my car into the dealership and the guy fixes my car, but he knows what to do and he knows how to make my life easy, you're worth your weight in gold, man. You're worth your weight in gold. When you're a nurse at the OR or in the ER, or you are, you know, you're helping deliver babies and you're making that woman feel, I've seen this with my own eyes. You are so needed. You're so needed. When there's an old person and you're, you're their caretaker and you're there to help them and they really need you and they're lonely. If you deliver meals on wheels and that's their only meal of the day, you're more important than I am. You're more important than I am. This is why I never feel better than anybody else. That's another thing. You can find great fulfillment. Oh my God, you can find great fulfillment in the example you set for your community and the example you set for your children. It's your example. Those are the people I admire and they're as good as anybody. By the way, they have as much an understanding or more than anybody I know in New York or LA. And I'm not saying that. There are farmers that I've met and they have a deeper understanding of life than anybody on Wall Street. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. That's an objective truth. So that's what I would say. This is really becoming this motivational seminar, but maybe I'm 50 and I'm, the only reason I feel qualified to say this is I've made more mistakes than most people who are younger than me. Well, that's fine. And that's great. One of the things we do on this show is try to get people's wisdom out of them. And you came in ready for action, obviously. (laughs) But I think it's really easy to look at a lot of folks who are successful and think, I just have to work hard on this, or look at a lot of folks and go, I just have to keep at it, or I just have to continue, or I'm never gonna be that intense, or I can't do this, or I'm not born with the raw talent. There's a a million little things that go on, and very rarely do you find somebody who has accomplished as much as you have that also has a level of self-awareness that is able to explain how they got there, or at least how they think they got there. Yeah, well, okay, good. I hope I'm helpful in in that regard. Absolutely, man. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Great big thank you to Brian Callen. We'll link to his podcast and his work in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Brian on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Brian Callen. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. And remember, if you want to grab the show notes, you can probably just tap your phone screen depending on what app you're using. Show notes should pop up right on your phone. Our boot camps, our live programs that we teach all of these skills in here at The Art of Charm, theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Join thousands of other guys who've been through the program who will become your network for life all around the world. A lot of people meet up. We run masterminds all over the place, all over the planet. And frankly, look, these are rewarding programs to see how far you can go learning body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, charisma, influence. We sell out a few months in advance, so if you're even thinking about it a little bit or you're just curious, get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. Again, theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And if you're military or intelligence agency affiliated, check out EliteHumanDynamics.com for more information on programs we have that are designed especially for you. That's EliteHumanDynamics.com. 
I also want to encourage you to join our AOC challenge if you want to dip your toes in the water at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to the number 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free. A lot of people may not get that. It's a great way to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. That includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. It will make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty theme music by Little People, transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth is everything. So share the show with your friends, share the show with your enemies, stay charming, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.